Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. This is our Q&A series where I answer your questions concerning the infinite banking concept and becoming your own banker. Halloween's right upon us, so this is a, a themed Q&A. We even have some recurring guests, so I'm excited. I'm looking forward to having fun and answering your questions. In this question, Kyle asks, how does a VA disability of PTSD affect insurability? Um, great question. And disability from the VA is treated differently than um, a typical disability. You know, if you got hurt or uh, you have some kind of uh, dreaded disease or that makes you disabled, it's not considered the same because, look, getting out of the military today almost comes with a disability so you can get a guaranteed income. Um, and it depends on the percentage of disability your income, and I'm not getting into that. When it comes to insurability, it's looked at uh, more favorably than a, a non-military disability. Because, look, the life insurance companies and the underwriters know what goes on in the military. Right, all the, the service people getting out of the military, and um, quite a few of them have a disability. So it really depends on the nature of the disability. But just because it's a VA disability does not mean you're not insurable. Okay, Now, you might not get preferred or super preferred or whatever, but um, you absolutely can be insured even if you have a disability from the VA of PTSD. And then the next question is, how does TRT, testosterone replacement therapy for low T effect, how does that affect insurability or ratings? If it is treated according to um, a medical diagnosis and a medical treatment, you're insurable. Um, and it's not necessarily, that alone is not necessarily going to cause a rating one way or another. And I love the show and all you all do. Thank you, Kyle. We greatly appreciate you listening. In this question, uh, for those of us who are renting our housing, is it is it advantageous to first funnel rent money through life insurance and then pay the landlord via policy loans? My guess is you would first want to have enough cash value to pay a year's rent, then your monthly rent, uh, quote unquote, or in parentheses payment, would go toward paying off the policy loan. Well, Sean, yeah. Um, you know, can that be done? Yes, that could be done. The banker can do whatever they want to do. Of course, you'd want as much capital in your policy as possible. You know, you want to have as much loan value as possible. But let's say we do that. Let's say that $1,000 a month in rent. I capitalize the policy for, you know, $12,000, right? In the first year, there's going to be a loss of liquidity, so I'm not going to be able to get that done, all right? Um, unless I can get the landlord to give a substantial discount for paying all up front. And then that all, that in and of itself has its own risk. You know, what if the property sells and who knows? Okay. All right. But let's say I have $12,000 cash value in my policies that in loan value and I have $1,000 a month rent. Can I borrow 12000 pay the rent for the year, possibly get a discount, and then just make loan repayments 
uh, to the life insurance company. Yes, you can do that. What's the advantage of that? You, you know, you could make the case, well, there's the advantage of getting that $12,000 into the policy that would maybe not have otherwise gone into the policy in the form of premium. But let's say I do that. Now, and then I'm going to, you know, the life insurance company is charging me an interest rate, right? And um, now I'm just repaying that loan over a 12-month time period. It, And I want to be clear about this. It can make sense, and, and that is a situation where you have an annual expense, you know, property tax, school tuition. There's a lot of different uh, scenarios where that idea is – uh, comes to mind, you know, pay the premium first and then finance. I was going to finance the, the expense over the 12 month time period anyway. So yes, that can be done. So, but what about the second year? All right. So I paid the premium. It might not have, you know, been paid because I was spending it on rent in this case or whatever, but I paid the premium to the life insurance company. And then I borrow against that cash value to do that. Now I'm in year two. Where's the other twelve thousand that wasn't going to be a premium anyway, right? If the rent or that expense was not going to be a premium, and I got it in there in the first year or in one year to then finance it through a policy loan, okay. Now that we're in year two and there's a reoccurring expense, so I have a new twelve thousand in premium, right? Um, that wasn't going to be allocated for premium to begin with because it was rent or another expense. Um, yep, you can do that. Or look at this. And so in year two, I don't have this a, additional $12,000, right? Because I'm not paying 24000 in rent. So what am I going to do in year two? Well, you could uh, borrow against the policy again, right? Pay the life insurance company or be charged 5% on the loan. Um, and even though the whole $12,000 loan amount is not outstanding for the whole 12 year time period, I'm being charged five. I might not actually pay 5% because I'm reducing the loan to zero within that 12 month time period. Um, but, but I'm in year two, right? The life insurance company is going to charge me five. Let's say I wind up paying you know, 3% actual dollars on the loan, right? Um, can I just pay the rent and in year two, right? And then add more money to the PUA, right? I mean, it, it might make sense or sound good to do that. You do it in the first year. Where's the second and subsequent year premium going to come from? I get it. The future is unknown, and maybe you have a windfall that has nothing to do with the rent or that particular expense, and now you have a place to put another $12,000. You know, can you do it? Yes, you can do it. Um, should you do it? I don't know. Every situation is different. After you get past the first year, then – you know, where's the consideration? Where's the second year premium coming from? Where's the subsequent $12,000 in premium dollars going to come from? It was allocated to rent in year one. You didn't pay the rent first. You paid the premium first. Now you have cash value that you, if it's in the first year of a policy, you can't even borrow the whole uh, $12,000 in premium, right? Because there's not $12,000 in cash value. Okay. But let's say you do that in year two. Um, where are the subsequent $12,000 going to come from? And maybe you go down that road, 
of searching your expenses and your debt service and your cash flows and your income, and you find another 12000 okay, well, I assure you this, that once you become your own banker, once you put your hand to the plow, once you pay a life insurance premium, your mind automatically thinks in these terms. How can I make my policy most efficient? How can I take any efficient dollars that are going away from me and convert it to premium first? That's a legitimate concept, a legitimate thought process. It's a legitimate discipline, and it'll serve you well. So the short answer is yes, you can do that, but what are the where are the second and subsequent years of premium going to come from? Okay. This question is concerning... Um, episode 144, Eb the Physician, the Real Estate Investor and Author, Part 1. The question is, can you insure tenants? So here's a landlord, most likely, that has a rental property with tenants. And the short answer is no. There's no loss to you. If your tenant dies, gets mad, and moves, or you're a victim, there's no loss to you because you're going to replace that tenant, that renter, post-haste. Right. As soon as they're gone, you've got somebody lined up to replace them. So there is no insurable interest between a landlord and a renter or a tenant. So the short answer is no, there's no loss to the landlord if a tenant moves, dies, or, uh, and, and actually, see, it's life insurance. The death of the tenant, did that cause you a loss? No, you're going to replace the tenant post haste because you're not going to leave that property empty or non cash flowing. And then there's a subsequent question, Sheila, Sheila asked, heck, I want to know the answer to that too. So there you go. In this question, hi, James, I saw your YouTube. I saw, I saw a YouTube video when you were on with the Money Advantage, and we're talking about a 1090 policy compared to a 6040 policy. I'm curious about how would a policy turn out when they are flipped with 90% going to the base and 10% going to the cash value, question mark. Also, what about the income or what about the outcome of a 60% going into the base and a 40% going to the cash value? I look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you. Well, thanks for the question, Thomas. Um, and, and, uh, you know, let me say I've, I've, talked about all I want to about premium ratio splits, premium dollars allocated to the base whole life policy and compared to the premium dollars uh, allocated to the paid up additions rider. And then there's a term component in there as well. Um, However, I keep talking about it because it's wrong to start from that basis. You know, you hear properly structured policy, properly, properly, properly structured. Well, what does that mean? Right? Everybody, you know, it's a very broad term. And, and I spoke about this in a client-only event that we just had in October 2022. Um, of course, it's client-only, and that content will be made available to our clients only. Um, but I talked about that. It wasn't my whole talk, but the connection was made to Nelson's work. What did Nelson do in becoming your own banker? Is there anywhere in the book that he says, you know, a base should be this amount and a PUA should be that amount, right? He didn't start there. In a properly uh, designed policy for an individual 
should not begin from that basis. It should begin from your individual, your personal cash flows, your income, your expenses, your net worth, your debt service, um, and and then your current financial position. And then that should also be considered with your personal financial needs. You know, do you have a family? Do you have young children? Do you have minor children? Do you have special needs children? Um, you know, is everybody healthy? Right. And then, and then duration. And this is always left out uh, or it's rarely considered. I don't see where it's considered typically the duration. You know, if you're 20, your time period, your life expectancy is much longer than a guy that's 50. And, it, and it's even longer than a guy who's 70. And the, and the lady who is 60, you know, her life expectancy is theoretically longer than the gentleman that's age 60. And so my point here is duration matters, right? Um, so your personal financial position, you know, where you're at right now, what you're trying to do, um, what you're actually doing, your duration, how much income do you have, you know, how much money can you save, how much money can be allocated toward a premium without, right, going to get a HELOC or without doing some esoteric, you know, um, additional thing to create premium dollars. And I'm not saying that you can't go get a HELOC and use a HELOC. I'm not saying that, but where should a properly designed policy, where should that begin? What is the basis of that structure, right? Well, your financial position your current position, your future uh, expected position, and I know the future is unknown, and your duration. That is how, from that information, is how you design a properly designed policy. Now, specifically talking or answering your question, on a 90-10, 90% to the PUA, 10% to the base, if you flip those and had 90% to the base and 10% to the PUA, depends on your duration, how old you are, right? And then the premium amount. You're going to wind up with a higher cash value in the early years, no question, on a 90% PUA versus a 10% PUA, right? And actually, you'll wind up with a higher cash value over the whole duration, okay? If you have 90% to the base, 10% to the PUA, compared to 10% to the base, 90% to the PUA, all right, but what happens in the future on those policies that you have a, a huge PUA? You could say, well, nothing. The illustration says everything's going to be great. Yeah, that illustration is a snapshot, a point in time, right then when it's printed. And as soon as that illustration is printed, it's wrong. Okay, so there's a lot of things that happen in the future. Some you know and some, most you don't know. But when it comes to policy structure, it's pretty edu uh, uh, It's an educated, uh, I don't even want to say an educated guess. You add fragility to a policy with the more PUA you add and the more term riders that you add. So, But what happens strictly on a 90-10, 10% to the base compared to a 90% base and a 10% PUA, you're going to have more cash value on that higher PUA amount. All right. And in uh, comparatively, now, if you look at a 60 40, a 50 50, or an 80 20, it really depends on your duration, the amount of premium that you're paying. And then 
you know, can you even pay a long premium? Can you pay 30 years of premium on a 90-10 policy? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And then the more you vary, okay, the more you vary your premium up and down, yeah, the more fragility is added. So I hope that answers your question. You know, the right ratio is for an individual is depends on the individual and those circumstances. Then the companies are all a little bit different. Their products are a little bit different. Um, but in my opinion, in my experience, the younger you are, the higher the base premium you should pay. The older you are, you know, it would be a higher PUA. But rarely have I ever seen a case, and I stand to be corrected, all you IBC wannabe uh, noisemakers, go ahead and show me a 90-10 policy that you've owned for 10 or 15 years, please. Please. Oh, you can't? Oh, okay. Well, in 10 or 15 years, then show me. Okay. And then, and then also the outcome of a 60% going to the base, 40% going to the PUA. And so and let me too say that premium is premium. If you write a check to the life insurance company, it's a premium. There's not a base premium. And then a PUA cash value or cash or whatever the terminology that is misused out in the big wide world. If you write a check to the life insurance company, it's either premium or a loan repayment, period. So both the PUA and the base pay or dividends and they both accumulate cash value okay and i've said it before and i'll say it again the base has all the power or the pua has all the power in the early years and the base premium is the most powerful in the latter years i know it's a blanket statement but <clears throat> it's true this question from david Say I had $1.5 million built up in a non-direct recognition policy, but had a $750,000 outstanding loan for real estate investment property. Uh, not saying that I'll do this. I'm just curious as to how it works. Say I wanted to start pulling cash flow at this point in time from my dividends. Question, would I be getting dividends from $1.5 million or just on the $1.5 minus $750,000 because of the unpaid loan? I understand that you would get the entire dividend with a non-direct recognition company, but for retirement, quote-unquote, purposes. What I'm really getting at is this. If I wanted to live a little off of IBC cash flow, could I take the dividend off the full amount plus the 3%-ish guarantees and take 5%-ish per year for cash flow to live on? Or would I only be able to take the 3% guarantee plus the dividend on the amount that I have in the policy minus the loans I owe? Hopefully, this makes sense. I can't find this answer anywhere online. And I bet you won't find that question or that answer anywhere online. Okay, so a couple of comments. Number one, um, on a direct recognition versus a non-direct recognition, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Um, a direct recognition company reduces the dividend on the outstanding loan, period. Now, do they do some math and give you a higher dividend on this or that? Eh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. But think about this. Let's say I had a million dollars in cash value, in loan value, and I borrowed it. 
I borrowed completely against uh, or the full loan value. I borrowed the full loan value in my example, a million dollars. Is that direct recognition company going to raise the dividend on that million dollars? And now I'm therefore I'm going to get a higher dividend because I have an outstanding loan versus a dividend without any outstanding loan. Our imagination, reason, logic, and prophecy. Can't we just logically get to the answer of, yeah, that makes no sense, right? Of course it doesn't. Okay. Now, does that mean that every direct recognition company is bad or you shouldn't have it? I'm not saying that. Um, but in your example, if you have 50% of your cash values collateralized in outstanding loans with a direct recognition company, you're going to have a lesser dividend than otherwise not having an outstanding loan. And, and two, look, some of these companies, you know, you're talking about retirement. There's no timeline on there or age, but you know, some of these direct recognition companies uh, give you like a, a little bitty window. If you've had a policy for 20 years and you're 55 years of age, you have 30 days to elect a, a non-direct dividend option. Um, or they, uh, act like a loan in retirement or they become a non-direct recognition loan in retirement so there's all kinds of things that go on out there but if i'm going to finance if i'm going to practice this idea of banking between now and retirement do i want a dividend whether there's an outstanding loan or not and the short answer is yes it's becoming your own banker that implies that i'm going to be my own banker and that i'm going to finance things that I, with life insurance policy loans that i was going to finance anyway and if I'm 10, 15, 20 years away from this quote unquote retirement, I want a, I prefer and I want a non-direct recognition company. And look, as a, as a disclaimer or a side note, I own uh, direct recognition policies and I have outstanding loans on them. Okay. But more about that later. Okay. What I'm really getting at, if I wanted to live a little off of the IBC cash flow, could I take the dividend off the full amount? Um, there's a couple of things. Look, you have dividend elections. There's five or six with every company. I can have the dividend paid to cash, PUA, which is where it should be. Um, I could take the dividend in cash, just send me the dividend check. I can have the dividend to reduce the loan. I can have the dividend to reduce the premium. I can have the dividend to remain at the company at interest. Um, so there's things that you can do. So you can take dividend income. There's no question. Um, in my opinion, generally, the dividend should be applied always to the PUA. And then if you make withdrawals or loans, you're just withdrawing you know, from the PUA or you're borrowing against the whole uh, cash value there. And then the idea that um, if you take 3% of the guarantees, look, that 3% that guarantee, 3.5% guarantee, 4% guarantee, all of that is a, an interest rate used for the basis of values. That is one component in a formula to price life insurance, okay? So nowhere on an illustration can you show me where you're getting a 3% guaranteed increase. You know, only the this is built on a 3% basis of value. But let me let me say this. The the accumulation in a life insurance policy comes from two parts. Number one, you're paying a premium. Okay, number one. But the two parts are the guaranteed increase in cash value. The cash value must equal the face amount at age 120. Period. By contract, by structure. Um 
And the basis of value that is used with each policy is going to produce either a lower cash value or a higher death benefit in the early years. Right? The cash value and death benefit equal at age 120. And then the dividend is not guaranteed. So the, the, the two primary components of the increase in value of a life insurance policy is a guaranteed increase in cash value and the non-guaranteed dividend. The combination of those two, we can all calculate an internal rate of return depending on the timeline. Right. And then if I can do that and I can and you can too, I mean, I can calculate the internal rate of return on a cash value, even though my premiums are, you know, X um, and maybe I have withdrawals, you know, in addition over this time period, or maybe I even have loans. Right. Now, I can calculate an internal rate of return with life insurance policy or a portfolio of policies. And with that internal rate of return, because they're unequal cash flows, right? I might have a real estate portfolio that, you know, has its own expenses. I'm paying taxes, insurance, property maintenance, and I have an income of rental cash flow, right? And I may have management. I can calculate an internal rate of return over any time period. And I can have a bond portfolio. I could have junk bonds, you know, high grade corporate bonds, high grade government bonds, and all durations are different, right? And then the, the par is different. Right, the rate on the bond is different, but I have a portfolio and they're all different, right? But I can create or calculate an internal rate of return on that bond portfolio. And I can do it on the real estate portfolio. I can do it on the life insurance portfolio. I can do it on any asset that I have. Now, if we can calculate an internal rate of return on these portfolios, then I can compare internal rate of return to internal rate of return, even though the inflows, outflows, cash flows are different. And then too, I'm going to revert back to my talk that I delivered in the client only event of October, 2022. I showed briefly how to take an income. I gave a broad example of how to take income from a life insurance policy. And they'll probably do a little bit better than you think. Okay. If you're paying, you know, on a well-designed, properly designed, professionally designed life insurance policy that meets your needs with where you're at, where you're going, your duration, they'll produce or they have the ability to produce a beautiful income. Okay. That's a long answer to quasi long question. Okay. Sean asks several questions here. Can you help me understand how I would maintain a high premium and simultaneously use my policy to finance a vehicle in the early years of the policy? I'm getting hung up on how much of my income I'm going to contribute or pay in premium versus how much I might need for future or unseen living expenses. I just want to play it safe. And uh, okay, great question. And you know what? I don't know the future either. The future unknown, unforeseen expenses are unforeseen and unknown because the future is unknown. But it's a legitimate struggle, sir. And my answer is this, that you should pay as much premium as you can wrap your mind around and make sense. Personally, financially, you know, and even for underwriting, it's got to make sense to the life insurance company with insurability and suitability. I mean, we live in the 20, you know, 2022 the financial industry is is heavily regulated, so it has to make sense. 
Okay. Um, but above all, you've got to be able to wrap your mind around the premium. And so my encouragement was be, of course, you want to be safe. I, I'm personally conservative, um, but you, you want to wrap your mind around a larger premium as you can. And whatever that is, it is. You know, if this guy pays a hundred thousand, that guy pays a million and you're only paying twelve thousand or, you know, six thousand a year, so be it. Okay. Start where you're at, where you can wrap your mind around the premium, and they should be a lot. Um, or robust, right? If you get into the future and something happens, then then, you know, there's never a problem until there's a problem, right? Then what do you do? Well, do you lower your premium? Can you lower your premium? And if you lower your premium, Say I'm paying a thousand dollars a month in premium, and I'm going forward five years, and now I want to buy a car, and the car is going to cost me seven hundred dollars a month, and I don't have seventeen hundred fifty dollars a month, right? Well, your income should be going up, especially if you're young. But if if you're in that situation, what do you do? Well, can you lower your premium down to two hundred fifty dollars and still pay the seven fifty, or do you have enough cash value to do the loan, right? Um, and then you're you you create your own loan repayment schedule, so you pretty much determine because you're your own banker what your uh, loan payment is going to be. Um, and if you haven't had increases in income to cover that, then you may be in a situation where you have to lower your premium. All right? And can you do that? Will your policy allow you to do that? If it does allow you to do that, will it allow you to raise your policy premium back up? And if so, if you are able to lower your premium, what does that affect, you know, to your, how, what kind of effect does that have on your policy? How does that affect your death benefit, your future cash values and your future dividends? Um, so it's a legitimate question. And my answer is you pay as high a premium as you can wrap your mind around, right? Be conservative. There's no question. Be safe. And the future is unknown. You deal with that at that time. But, I'm not saying put your head in the sand between now and then. Go ahead and as soon as you put your hand to the plow and you start paying life insurance premiums, you're going to be thinking on how, how do I make my cash flows more efficient? How, 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 do, how can I get more discipline? How can I get more premium dollars into the policy? So it sounds to me like you're on the front or the early end. Congratulations. You're thinking right. It's a legitimate concern. And, and I would tell you, sir, to, to break out the yellow legal pad or however you run your finances and find the money. That's what I tell you. Uh, worst case scenario, you have to reduce your premium, right? Uh, or borrow against your policy and, and pay premium for a time period. I mean, there's lots of different things that can be done, but you above all, you, the policy owner should know what you can do or not do with your policy. The riders, the PUA, can you go up? Can you go down? What is the effect if you change that PUA payment? Okay. And then he goes on, it's crossed his mind that he might want to become eventually an agent to share this idea with the people that he loves. Um, you know, and he understands that it's easy to get a license, but the, you know, actually being in the life insurance business may be a little bit more difficult than um, some people think. But, you know, my encouragement is, is this that, you know, if you want to become a, a life insurance agent, and by all means, go become a life insurance agent, I would encourage you to find a mentor and I would encourage you to uh, become involved with the Nelson Nash Institute. Okay. Um, it's not as easy as 
as it seems some sometimes, you know, 90% of agents fail in the first year. The remaining 10%, I think 80 to 90% of those fail over the next three years. So, um, I mean, it's it's work, right? Um, but somebody's got to do it. If not you, who? Okay. Um, okay. In this question, I have both non-direct and direct recognition policies. Given the way the dividend is calculated on the different types of uh, policies, direct versus non-direct, I was wondering if James would be willing to provide some thoughts and consideration on how our considerations he would consider regarding when to utilize a direct recognition cash value of a policy versus a non-direct recognition of another, assuming that he owned both tops. Yes, I do own both tops. And since I own both tops and, um, you know, I'm personally continuing to buy life insurance. I, I mean, I'm, I like owning life insurance. I like paying a premium. I, I love the ability to create the banking function in my life. Um, so I do own both. And since I own them both, I embrace them. To me, it wasn't uh, worth replacing, personally, the direct recognition policies that I own. And like I said, continue to pay substantial premiums to those and have done so over the last 15, 16 years. Um, I don't I don't give a preference, right? To I don't treat mine with preference. Um, if I'm going to finance something, I'm going to use the direct and the non-direct, and I don't care. Okay. Um, we own several policies with all of the different life insurance companies that we represent. It's our pool of money. You know, some pay a really good dividend, others, you know, a fair dividend, and then others don't pay a dividend. And then you got the direct recognition company that, you know, doesn't pay a full dividend on an outstanding loan. I don't care. Okay. Now, if I were to start all over, right, because those were the like first five policies that we bought were direct recognition companies, I wouldn't have bought them. I would not have purchased them, but I didn't know. Um, but like I said, going forward, you know, I've had the opportunity to replace them if I wanted to, and I don't want to. I, I would just as soon uh, continue, continue to expand my system. All right. Um, you know, mathematically, would I come out maybe ahead if I did replace them early on over what time period, you know, and now <clears throat> since the 7702 has come into effect January 1 of 2022, the internal revenue code section 7702 today compared to pre 2022, the death benefits, like if I paid a $10,000 premium today on a policy, I'm going to wind up with much less death benefit compared to buying a $10,000 premium policy before 7702 changes, right? Um, and so if I were, or if anyone were to exchange currently, replace, you know, older policies with direct recognition companies, you know, that is not the sole reason to replace a policy, in my opinion. But if that were to be done, you're going to wind up with less death benefit comparatively. Now, there are things that you can do. You can put term riders on the, on the new policy and, and make up for that. But um, I hope that answers your question. It's a great question, Michael. I appreciate you greatly for listening. You're a stellar young man, and I know you're getting it done, and I know you asked that question.
for these listeners. So thank you. And this question, Paul, here's an email question. My heart kind of goes out to this guy somewhat. Uh, it's kind of a long question and he's very nice. He says he just discovered the podcast, started watching all of them. He currently has four infinite banking type policies um, that he has funded over for over a year now. And he's uh, listening to the podcast and he's looking for a particular podcast that may teach or explain how this additional interest is paid into a policy. And uh, I think that's page 58 and becoming your own banker interest. What we call additional interest to a policy is really premium to the life insurance company. It's interest. What we're calling interest is our deal and it's more capital to your system. Right. Um, but that's what his question. It's kind of a long question. Um, but he's like, he can't figure out from Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Oh, yeah, page 58. Um, he discusses paying back the loan with greater interest rate than the loan rate to get more, you know, premium into the policy. He understands it's a policy. He understands that and he would like to do it, but he doesn't understand the mechanics of how to do it actually. And then he goes on to explain, you know, if I borrow and I pay back five, well, um, I think you've got it. And I answered this email directly, but Paul, you have it. Your policy won't allow you to pay additional unscheduled PUA payments. And if you did, you're going to have to go through underwriting. Oh, they didn't tell you that though, right? They use the infinite banking concept, right? They use IBC. They talk about Nelson and all, all day long, but then they can't show you how to do that. I'm shocked. So, um, but you'll be fine. And I actually gave him the answer, you know, what he might consider doing. There are ways you can manage that. Okay. So what? You can't get additional premium into your life insurance policy, but you want to pay additional interest, quote unquote, into your system. There's a way to do that. And maybe it's a segregated checking account, right? Which there's more content out there on that, but that would be a solution. And then, you know, when that's, if you did that, that segregated checking account winds up with a bunch of money that you couldn't get into your existing policies without going through underwriting or any other method, maybe it's time to expand. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is, right? That's a reoccurring um, event where I'm accumulating a lot of money in a side account that's within my banking system and all my policies are full and I can't repay loans. It might be a natural signal to expand, Okay, what a concept. And oh my gosh, did I mention natural? Yeah, that's really look, the infinite banking concept is really, uh, I mean, the human action at the you and me level. I mean, it is a natural uh, way to handle and interact with one's finances. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. But thank you for listening, Paul. Keep listening, sir. <clears throat> okay, now this is a, a question, and I've had several of these on Facebook, email, on uh, YouTube, and this is a question. This one is on part two of Eb Samlowski, the physician, the real estate investor, and the author, part two, episode number 145. The question is, where's the link to the book he wrote? I don't have a link because um, I don't know that you can buy it online yet. If you want the book that Eb offered in part one and part two, 
of Eb Samlowski. You know, he wrote a chapter in a book. He's currently writing a book. And uh, in the episode, you know, he said, James, just have him call your office. And well, he has not brought me books yet. So I'm throwing Eb under the bus. I don't have any of those books in my office, any of those books in my office, but I'm supposed to have a stock within a week. Um, and if I get them and you want the book that he offered for free, you call my office or email me. When I have them, I will ship them out. That's all I need is I think you got to pay for shipping and I need a place to email it. It's a hard copy book, you know, maybe paperback, but um, as far as I know, the book's not available via a link as far as the download and it's not in the store um, because I don't have any. So I hope that answers your question. It's your move, bro. You're a listener. I appreciate you, sir. Okay. So if you want Eb's book, let me know and I'll supply him whenever I have a stock. Okay. Look, I have a special guest on today. He's a reoccurring guest. He's an IBC noisemaker. I appreciate reoccurring guests and all their contributions, okay? Um, he didn't have a question, but he had a statement. And the statement is on the Great Utopian Delusion, episode 136 with Dr. Paul Cleveland, PhD, Birmingham Southern, Texas A&M. Yeah, okay. You two are completely clueless about everything. How are you this old and still this naive? As full of grace as I am, your question or your statement is not even a question. Your statement says more about you than it does about Dr. Cleveland or myself. So I appreciate the statement. Not really. I don't appreciate the statement. I'm using, I, I appreciate the statement in the fact that I can use it on an episode, right? And you're a perfect representation of people who ask this kind of or make these kinds of statements and my encouragement to you would be to go ahead and listen to the episode maybe read one of i don't know the four or five books that dr paul cleveland wrote and then question our intelligence again okay so you keep trying buddy that's a swing and a miss but you keep trying okay i was admonished to not to forget to mention you know, the uh, since it is Halloween, right, the vampires who build Frankenstein policies and then ghost you um, after you become their customer. It's like there's a lot of information out there in the big wide world, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, wherever. It's everywhere. Uh, you know, in my encouragement, if you want to learn the infinite banking concept, you cannot jump over a correct foundation which is nelson's first book becoming your own banker his second book building your warehouse of wealth and a third book book that i really uh think is foundational is how privatized banking really works and then you have nelson nash's six and a half hour seminar available on dvd or it's available digitally through the nelson nash institute and through our store if you've enjoyed this Halloween-themed Q&A, you may also enjoy episode 106, last year's Halloween-themed episode. We had fun doing that. We had fun doing this. And as always, thank you for listening. Have a great day.